Hello everybody. This is Natraj and you're listening to the Startup Project. In this episode I talked to Pranay who's the co-founder of 91 Springboard, a co-working space company in India. I talked to him about his journey of starting a company like 91 Springboard, of various investments he made along the way and his next venturing into angel investing. I had a blast talking to him and hope you will too. Hey Pranay, welcome to the show and uh, thanks for being here. Hi Natraj, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh so I want to start this conversation and by uh, let's jump into how 91 Springboard started. 91 Springboard has been uh, a very interesting starting experience where uh, Varun who's the founder of 91 Springboard, he had just exited out of his previous company called Uh, my guest house this was acquired by make my trip which is one of the biggest otas of india so And what is ota ota is online travel agents so uh, it's like expedia or one of the various travel booking sites mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they had acquired my guest house uh, and once it got acquired these are i'm talking of about 2011 12 days when entrepreneurship and startups were still not as cool in india mm-hmm. so the early entrepreneurs you know they started approaching varun and saying your company got acquired can you help us got it uh, can you advise us mm-hmm. and that's what got him starting to think towards a fund mm-hmm. and uh, think of it as a cross between a small fund and a y combinator/techstars that was what uh, he was trying to set up Mm-hmm. and in parallel for me i was running the best incubator in india at uh, the top mb institute of india called im amdabad mm-hmm. and uh, varun and i were from the same school the uh, when i say school i mean k to 12 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we were in the same school he was your senior to me so mm-hmm. uh, that's where we reconnected uh, on this idea of let's do a fund come accelerator together Uh, and anand who's the third co-founder he uh, ended up joining so he was also in the same school and he was just back from us mm-hmm. after kind of wrapping up his startup there and he was taking a break when uh, varun pulled him in saying hey, you are on a break why don't you come and help mm-hmm. and that's how the three of us got together i also see that you have a fourth co-founder deepak sharma and he's the ex global chairman of city bank how did that happen Oh, that's another interesting story. Uh, in fact, I'll let me also go through the evolution of you know how the business grew, and that's where Deepak fits in very well, also. Mm-hmm. So Deepak is—he uh, was the friends and family of Varun, who you know invested in the friends and family round. Got so it. he has known Varun since Varun was a kid. Mm-hmm. Our fun thing is we tell everyone how Varun used to break crockery at Deepak's home. <laughs> when varun was a kid uh-huh. and uh, so deepak gave a small check uh, to varun when we were starting uh-huh. and uh, i think one smart thing we did in whatever ups and downs we had throughout the early days is we kept our investors updated about Got what's it. happening we used to send out like a religious monthly report to our investors mm mm-hmm. and uh, uh, as we were growing one fine day 
Deepak looked at everything and said, "Guys, why aren't you going faster?" Hmm. And uh, that conversation again. He flew down to India. We sat together, and he said, "Pranay, uh, not just Pranay, but all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, guys, I want to invest in your company, and plus, I want to join as a co-founder." Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. Right. So that's how Deepak came on board later in the so- journey. whenever we uh, talk about fundraising right you've touched upon how deepak invested how did you approach fundraising at that point so you got this idea you wanted to create a y combinator slash incubator project were you clear in your head so what is the first step that you guys did like did you went about and see different models what was your first sort of product slash service that you started so the we went through various evolutions right the first part of what we were doing was literally setting up a micro fund mm. and the way the economics of a small fund works so typically in a fund like imagine a fund which is a 10 million dollar fund mm-hmm. which will be investing in startups yeah uh, the way the fund economics works is what's called a 220 model where the people who are managing the fund Yes they get 2% of the fund to manage their expenses yeah. yeah and then whenever the fund returns profits to the people who have given them money yeah that's when they get 20% of carry. the share of profits which is called carry yeah uh, a funny story about carry is which that that term carry right that comes from the 17th century lingo when uh when people who were uh, doing this uh, trips right expeditions uh, in 17th right. century when they used to go out and uh, on a treasure hunt uh, and they were funded by investors uh, and they whenever you get anything in that expedition trip the 80% is given to the investors while 20% you get to keep so that's how they funded the original you know expedition trips and we still continue to use that uh, lingo and that's why we call it carry because it's carried by the ships that are coming back uh, wow very interesting uh, i didn't know this <laughs> so so you actually didn't start as a co-working space then so you were initially thinking of setting up a micro fund exactly mm. and to raise the micro fund in some sense for the the gp which is the general partners running the fund mm-hmm. the ones who would get the 2% and 20% carry we yeah. raised a small amount of money from friends and family mm-hmm. and then the first fundraising we were doing was actually not the fundraising to invest in the co-working business mm-hmm. but the fundraising from what's called lps limited partners Yes. will give us money that we can invest in startups yes uh, and here we went around talking to a lot of people interestingly i made a trip to uh, the silicon valley area mm-hmm. connected with a lot of people there too mm-hmm. and realized that we had really grossly underestimated the effort and time it takes to raise funds uh this in hindsight honestly this was 2013 uh, first half got it uh and you know in hindsight all of that sounds so stupid but uh, you know how all entrepreneurs are so we yeah. were the overconfident guys knocking on each door mm-hmm. uh and uh, honestly i mean i have now a lot of respect for those investors where they were able to see and understand that <laughs> uh, yeah. we weren't ready to 
manage a fund at that time yeah uh, so well the fund never happened hmm. we had a couple of investors who had invested in startups supported by me or varun before mm-hmm. so a lot of them were really nice really excited mm-hmm. but they were clear with us where they said we like you guys mm-hmm. we are happy to invest in startups that you bring to us mm-hmm. but we don't want to give money into a blind pool so we don't want you to give want to give you money which you can go around investing without us having a say in it got it uh and that's where we came back to uh india and we were sitting we this is where we had taken the initial money to set up a nice space mm-hmm. and this was the space where we'll have the startups funded by us working our intent was to create a small uh, really high growth environment mm. uh, if i may i think at that time plug and play was already very popular yeah, uh, yeah. in us yes it's so, um, one of the interesting places and right so imagine it to be not very unlike that right? yeah. where the thought was it this will be big space uh, mm-hmm. a very uh, nice environment where our funded entrepreneurs are sitting there various service providers a lot of activities are happening mm-hmm. and it just creates a culture where the startups funded by us find it easier to grow hmm uh, so initially your idea was uh, the space is going to be accessible for only the startups that you are going to fund or is it going to be a co-working space and you might use uh, that deal flow and sort of find the startups that you want to fund so it was in between it will be primarily for startups we are going to fund mm-hmm. but then we'll permit some people on selective basis uh, where we feel like they can add value to our portfolio that was the initial thought so we were getting very selective mm-hmm. on the other side we were doing a lot of activities and events which were open to public got it got it and so that got us all these events were really getting us a lot of recognition lot of support and then the whole ecosystem in ncr so mm-hmm. delhi is where we started ncr stands for national capital region mm-hmm. so whole, the whole ecosystem in delhi really got behind us to help the startups we were working with i think this was very early times even for co-working spaces as an idea right uh, you might be one of the first companies doing this we were the very first doing it in fact i have a funny story for you there uh because we never thought of doing a co-working right mm-hmm. we never googled if things like this exist interesting yeah uh, i we did read up about plug and play mm-hmm. but uh, you know weaver was already pretty big then i'm again by now i'm talking about 2013 end yeah yeah but uh we were dumb enough where we weren't even aware of it <laughs> yeah uh, the interesting thing is the day we decided to pivot mm-hmm. and we were uh thinking that you know what do we call this yeah i still remember we were sitting in this conference room varun anand and me where uh, we started thinking that it's like incubation but the incubator is too uncool a word people mm-hmm. just associated with like these run down government uh, funded yeah. setups yeah uh then there was this hub as a term which was going around very uh, mm-hmm, popular mm-hmm. at that time yeah i mean we, we have t hub in south india t hub and impact hub t hub came in later impact later, yeah. hub had already grown mm-hmm. 
So, uh, but somehow the hubs were still not as, uh, they weren't real indication of what we were trying to do. Mm. And that's where we came up with the term co-working. And I still remember that debate where Anand said, but that's not even a dictionary word. (laughs) And we went around throwing more words where eventually we decided on Uh co-working saying this explains it the best. Yeah. And immediately after that, when we were trying to set up the site and did a SEO optimization is when we realized, hey, this exists <laughs> globally. Co-working has existed for long enough. Right. And here are we thinking we've invented a new word. <laughs> <laughs> so your initial idea for the name was coworking.com or something like that? No, the name remained Springboard. Okay. Uh, so 91 Springboard. 91 stands for India's country code. Okay. I was about to ask why 91. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that stands for India's country code and the springboard to signify that uh, we really helps the company grow and go up in life. So by this point, uh, you've, uh, your business model was clear for you guys, right? Uh, you are going to be a co-working space and at the same time you will invest in startups that will, you know, that will seem interesting to you. Is that right? Yes, you're right. Just that co-working at this time also, we thought of it more as a survival. Mm-hmm. But our your goal main was, yes. So our thought was we'll still do a fund and that will be the core thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, we basically, we were looking at a bank accounts and we were realizing that we have survival money for only one more month. Mm-hmm. And that's where we said that we have about, I think at that time we had say about 60 odd seats lying empty in our space. Hmm. and there were companies lining up wanting to be there Got it. because they were really finding value. The companies in our spaces were really finding value, but we were getting over selective about who we want to allow in. Hmm. So that's where we discussed and we said, Hey, if we can fill hundred seats. Yeah. And at that time we were selling them for about 5,000 rupees. So hmm. roughly about, uh, let me say about 70 odd dollars. Hmm. So that's where we said, if we can fill this up, we can have sufficient revenue to pay for our expenses mm-hmm. and it will mm-hmm. give us a life lifeline. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, uh, sort of all successful startups and or more, most of the successful startups, we end up listening some sort of a pivot story, right? Uh, you are now a co-working, full-blown co-working company. But the way you approached it and or sort of ended up doing it uh, is completely different, right? Your motivations were entirely different uh, and you ended up becoming uh, a co-working space. So when you realized uh, that you've become a co-working space company, uh, from then on, how did you uh, sort of scale or looked at your company versus uh, when you looked at or approached it as a fund? Sure. So um, I'll also explain how we realized that, right? So initially, the first space we had set up, the co-working aspect was purely to help us pay for expenses while the fund happens. Mm-hmm. Then we had a second space in Delhi again, mm-hmm. where a landlord approached us. It was a pre-fitted space and we did a revenue share, mm-hmm. very asset light starting for us. Mm-hmm. And literally like Anand and me started operating out of that space. Mm -hmm. When the first member came, we used that money to hire an employee for that space. Mm -hmm. So we bootstrapped our way into these two spaces. Mm -hmm. We, after that, got offered a space in Hyderabad. Mm -hmm. 
and mm-hmm. this is a city about two and a half hour flights from our flight from Delhi. Yeah, where there was a pre-fitted space in a building of a company which Varun sat on the board of, and they said, "Here is a space. If you guys want to use it, use it." Mm. That's when we did a conversation and we realized that let's do this experiment, mm-hmm. and if we can pull it off mm. uh, remotely. right mm. because uh, it's very hard for one of us to shift completely yeah. to a new city for a small space mm-hmm. but if we can run it with a remote team mm. and we can set up the systems to run it mm. then that means there's no holding after that yeah so i mean and, running a co-working space is a very operationally intensive business right i mean you have to take care of a lot of logistics uh, involved in setting up a co-working space and springboard has grown into what uh, around 25 to 30 locations right pre pandemic right. and how did you guys sort of scale from your let's say third or fourth uh, location so uh, natraj basically uh, once we were at three spaces and we proved hyderabad as a model plus profitability to ourselves mm-hmm. is when we said let's scale it up and that's when we started thinking of all systems and processes that we need to have to be able to scale mm-hmm. so uh, of course part of it was fundraising mm-hmm. this is when deepak joined us uh, he invested uh, he brought in a couple of friends to invest mm-hmm. and then the other part of it was imagine the equivalent of creating playbooks Hmm. right so uh, how to set up a space what is the kind of design we need hmm. uh, how do the layouts work for us hmm. to how do we reach out to members uh, we started setting up our central sales team so hmm. till now a lot of sales were happening like if you imagine like till hyderabad basically it was our selling centrally yeah yeah Uh, so that's when we started thinking through what will be happening at the hub what will be happening centrally mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of those i mean i can go into details but these are really gory process creation details right yeah so i mean uh, are there any learnings that you would you guys would do differently i mean in terms of scaling or whether some things that didn't work uh lots of them lots of them honestly uh we weren't from the industry mm-hmm. none of us had real estate background mm-hmm. so uh we did a lot of mistakes and thankfully we learned enough to be able to survive and grow mm-hmm. uh i think a few of them uh if i may is uh, one uh we were hawked hawkeye we were looking at our cash flows mm-hmm. but uh we didn't have an appropriate mis initially to give us a good view into business mm-hmm. uh, what and, do you mean by mis see so basically uh, mis is a i mean it stands for management and information systems mm-hmm. but basically think of it as a document that you're seeing at end of month mm-hmm. that gives you a good sense of the key numbers that you want to track got it key information you want to track mm-hmm. so uh, a lot of times when entrepreneurs start they're just looking at cash flow what's coming to bank account and yeah. what the bank accounts are at and uh, especially in business like ours where uh, you're doing a lot of capex mm-hmm. uh, cash flow sometimes throw you off so in our case for example what we thought of our profitability from a hub 
and how we were taking decisions mm-hmm. because we were only looking at cash flows it was a uh, sometimes things would be harder mm-hmm. uh, so once and we started sorry so why uh, why was it harder uh, i mean why did the cash flow didn't give you the full picture again so let me give you an example and it will again at risk of sounding like the stupidest <laughs> entrepreneurs that's okay that's uh, okay i mean uh, one of the we, things i'm trying to do with the podcast is for whoever entrepreneur listens i mean the things like you are talking about cash flow or uh, mis uh, these are the stuff people actually need and i think that will help fill the gap for uh, up and coming entrepreneurs right people who want to become right. entrepreneurs so yeah it would be a good i mean and no answer is a dumb answer right yes so i'll give you an example of a cash flow versus profitability thing mm-hmm. uh, we when we started in delhi it was winters and we were working out of a our first hub was out of a basement in delhi mm-hmm. so we realized it's cold in fact it's very cold mm-hmm. and uh, we don't need air conditioning so mm-hmm. we didn't install acs mm-hmm. uh, by march we started realizing that it's getting hot and it's getting uncomfortable yeah and uh, but acs were costing enough so mm-hmm. in our uh, just to survive and try to optimize what we are spending mm-hmm. we brought in air coolers mm-hmm. uh, these are called desert coolers in india i don't yeah, know if yeah. i've seen them yeah but basically they use water and kind of spray of water to cool the air and throw that in yep uh then so we brought in that but the issue was when monsoons the rain started approaching mm-hmm. or they were say about 20 days away mm-hmm. it started getting really humid mm-hmm. but now we were already too invested into all of this and we said it's a matter of another 20 days once it starts raining the humidity will go so let's mm. just uh, figure out how to get humidity away mm. and we got in a lot of charcoal etc to absorb the humidity mm. it was a very uncomfortable environment in the space mm. there were a couple of members literally coming with a towel around their neck mm-hmm. wiping their faces while they were working mm-hmm. and uh, then one fine day as it had to be a big team of about 10 people decided to leave us uh, and this is a team which really like we had helped a lot and the founder i remember that conversation he said i'm so sorry but what can i do my team isn't willing to work in this environment mm. i will come back but for now i have to go Hmm. and that's when we looked at the figures and we realized that the revenue we lose on a monthly basis because of this hmm. is higher than installment cost of putting up acs even if we swipe our credit cards got it i mean it's like the effect of uh, losing a certain percentage of your customers uh, often referred to as churn right if you have the churn is more costly than the investment that you you thought you were saving uh, by avoiding installing air conditioning and now explaining cash flow versus pnl mm-hmm. the because we kept thinking of air conditioning as a capital expense right yeah, say if yeah. you were thinking it will take about $10000 to install acs mm-hmm. we kept thinking of that as a massive figure yeah but the moment we thought of it as a installment 
yeah. on credit card. Mm. We were able to realize this is what we are paying monthly. And yeah. if it will add so much revenues to the business, mm. it will still help us save a few in the end. Yeah. It's also an uh, uh, investment for the future uh, versus just thinking about the short term, right? Because it will continue to help for, you know, whatever time and air conditioning works while it also improves the condition in your space. You're right. You're right. So there's a part of branding with others, mm. but I mean, what I mean is like, we knew that, right? Yeah, we, yeah. we were never confused on the AC is not required, Yeah. but just on looking at numbers, we couldn't see it so clearly mm-hmm. that it's a, it's a, how do I say a dumb proof decision to just take this right? Yeah. Yeah. versus evaluating it so much. Mm. So I think that's where looking at a MIS and right formats Mm. helps Mm. versus we were just looking at the bank balance. Mm. I mean, that's a great lesson of what you face in practice versus uh, what you theorize, what a company goes through, right? So talking about just the co-working space, uh, I first encountered your company when I was doing a different podcast and I was talking about WeWork. And the way always I looked at WeWork or any co-working space is if you remember, uh, the workspace itself was transformed by a couple of companies, right? For example, Google was famously known for having this lavish offices. Uh, and right. once Google did that, Facebook has to do because their their offices are in the same city, right? There's a competition for employees. And then once Facebook did it, Microsoft has to do it. Once Microsoft does right. it, Amazon has to do it, right? So that right. kind of triggered uh, what sort of Google started the lavishness uh, uh, in the workplace. And then it over time like became a necessity because employers will not be there at your company. So I always thought we work as like, uh, you know, Google office as a service. Uh, so, I mean, you, when you realized like co-working space is all about designing and optimizing space and at the same time providing all the benefits that a company like, you know, Google or Microsoft provides, how did you think about the space design and did you get additional help from architects or, you know, people who are professional at doing this sort of a thing? Definitely. So the, see the, also the way the maths in the business works, space design in this case, in our case is one of the most important thing. Mm-hmm. How do you structure the space so that you can fit in the right amount of people mm-hmm. yet at the same time, it, do it in a manner where it ensures it's not tight for them. There are all these interactive areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, This also becomes very important because uh, for us as in DNA, a large part of our focus was in how can we build community? How can we get people to help each other? Mm -hmm. And how does that flow into architectural design? Mm. is something which was always very critical for us. Yeah, how so does the space how does the space itself like enable collaboration, right? Because that is one of the things you were trying to do from day one. Precisely. So you started as a co-working space uh and one advantage when you have co-working spaces and especially if you have a lot of companies using your co-working space, then you kind of also become sort of a distribution a channel for a lot of other services. And uh, right now, like if I look at your website, you have partnerships with AWS, Sodexo, Razorpay, and Pixie, right? These are all the tools and services that you guys went ahead and made deals for the 
consumers of your product that is your co-working space right so what was the strategy behind that and was it just a uh, an additional revenue source for you or were you looking at it as a sort of a customer acquisition cost or both uh, so it started and for a long time it remained a customer retention cost mm-hmm. where uh, it wasn't a revenue source but our thought was that how can we ensure that the customers is deriving more and more value by being at 91 springboard uh, so a lot of these tie ups we did were really a win 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 tie up mm-hmm. where the organizations were anyway looking to add new customers to their service and they were willing to give a freebie out to mm. in some sense lead to a customer trial mm. uh, all of these were curated uh, supports so mm. we knew that the startups which was our primary market when we started mm-hmm. uh, needed something like this and these were the best products available uh and finally for us uh, we were just connecting we were enabling mm-hmm. and at the end of the day we could go to customer and say hey see by just being at 91 springboard you are able to save so much value for yourself on the other things too mm-hmm. so it it creates a nice flywheel effect both in terms of acquisition and also retention Right. right. Uh, and does I mean does Springboard get a uh, revenue source from these partnerships, or is it just a pure uh, partnership relation with these companies? So we started monetizing it much later down the line. Mm. Uh, now uh, there's some amount of uh, revenue that we have from that, mm. but I must confess it's a much smaller figure compared to our board. compared to your core business, which is yes. co-working, right? Uh, so. I mean, you guys have started originally with the idea of to invest in the startups, right? And it co-working space is sort of like a breeding ground of next successful startup. Every startup, uh, I mean, before pandemic, uh, started in some sort of a co-working space, be it in US or in Bangalore. So, how did the investment side of the thing progress uh, as you are, you know, developing your co-working business? So it was very interesting. Uh... Uh, so one we kept our acceleration investment bits alive mm-hmm. we didn't have funds to invest but a, a interesting evolution that it took was where a lot of the investors we had talked to earlier mm-hmm. they had been in touch and they told us that whenever you find a good startup let us know mm-hmm. and on the other side uh, primary because of our backgrounds too varun i anand however busy the co-working would keep us we would keep meeting new entrepreneurs we would mm. keep helping them in some way or the other mm. and uh, all of these will pull in into a advisory sort of a role and i had a small team which was helping out this manage the advisories to the startup and help syndicate rounds around them Mm-hmm. so we built a portfolio of about 20 companies where uh, we had helped syndicate around and mm-hmm. we had some advisory equities in there uh, but on the other side it's very interesting where uh, whenever we would talk to a investor especially a vc mm-hmm. they would initially look at us and say hey all of this is interesting this space thing that you're doing is interesting mm-hmm. but the real door lies in the diamonds which are sitting in the space mm. and uh, it took some effort on the other side to tell them that how a small fund if you think of it mm-hmm. can never be a billion dollar business mm. 
funds by design are meant to be selective hmm. and uh, uh, i mean there is no fund globally which is a small which is investing in early stage startups but it's a billion dollar fund Hmm. but on the other side co-working is a billion dollar business hmm. right yeah so yeah. Uh, so so there we were very focused where we realized that uh, we uh, want to have our core as co-working hmm. and a lot of these incubation activities we are doing is something which is one division but the hmm. core remains co-working so this model of uh, sort of investing in your uh, in the companies that are part of your co-working spaces has been replicated elsewhere one of the ideas i thought and uh, i want to know from you if this happened or not uh, is uh, you could do something sort of like why what y combinator does right like give them a 150k check and take a 7% equity in the company uh, but you could do a slightly modified version of that where you could do hey you can use a co-working space like you can allocate a certain percent of co-working space for a certain time and in exchange for equity did you guys uh, do any models uh, of uh, you know investing a startup in such format we initially thought of it but we parked it honestly mm-hmm. uh, i think uh, the key reason and something i i can keep debating till we try it out mm. but the key reason uh, we had was that what will naturally happen like imagine the flow of conversations right where yeah. there are members coming to your space and applying and then mm. to a few you're saying hey you are great and i'll take equity in you but mm. by the way to the others you'll say you're not good mm. and i want you to pay up yeah and that passing a judgment on your customer while they're coming in mm. and especially while you're trying to create a community and have people interact with each other mm. it's uh, yeah I, i mean that's a great point it won't be a great dynamic yeah right? it doesn't make sense in terms right. of how your incentives are aligned right and then the third thing and i'll kind of link that back also is i think uh, the reason money was invented and barter was done away with is money just makes life simpler mm. so even if we were doing that the transaction would have been where the customer we would have said i'm giving you so much worth of space for free yeah and you give me equity equivalent of that yeah i mean that that's Instead why that, money was simpler, invented right yeah so it's simpler you pay me for the space and then if i like you i'll invest in you yeah right yeah because uh, at, i mean now that i have asked the question it's much more clear that if you do if you've done that way you're also uh limiting your original business which is the co-working space precisely um, so and finally it also you know keeps you more honest yeah it's very easy to think that hey i'm collecting equity worth so much which will one day get monetized yeah and kind of lose your sight on economics and profitability of a space yeah yeah so we thought let's just do it this way i mean uh, i was uh, scrolling through your twitter page uh, and i found this interesting image where you are receiving the uh, award from president of india for being the best emerging technology incubator uh, how did that come about so this was our as i said our we continued running the incubator mm-hmm. and even though uh it was a kind of a parallel division for us mm. we tried to integrate the the philosophy of incubation into our core mm. 
so the way i um, i called it is where i said we are a community led incubator mm-hmm. the whole focus is how can you make the whole space work like a incubator and there are some of these which are startups which are uh, which you are supporting but more importantly everyone in the space is helping each other so that philosophy we kind of grew on and try to keep track of what kind of companies are coming out how we are helping them and uh, thankfully government of india they recognized it uh, we i i don't remember exactly but i think we were at about 12 spaces at that time mm-hmm. and which honestly uh, like if we look at the numbers and number of startups supported or anything mm-hmm. we were probably uh, 10 times bigger than the closest incubators in it mm-hmm. so, so that's how it came about right so uh, were there any really successful companies that came out of uh, your incubation quite a few uh, again uh, the reason i'm taking a pause mm-hmm. is i don't want to sound like if we weren't there the companies won't exist for sure yeah so and we were a lot less high touch right so rather yeah. i should use the word we were low touch low touch yeah compared to a lot of accelerators or incubators you see otherwise yeah yeah but that said a lot of uh, good companies out of india uh, we've seen the founders and their core teams uh, grow out of our spaces so be it uh, revigo which is one of massive logistics company mm-hmm. uh, which has grown out of india mm-hmm. uh, lenscart another unicorn focused on uh, basically eyewear mm-hmm. yeah uh, so so bunch of these i honestly the list can keep going on yeah when i was in college len i used to use lens cart to buy sunglasses and okay. uh, the funny thing about lens cart is they have a brand a name of their first sunglass which is based out of uh, an entourage character uh, the tv okay. show entourage Uh, that's wow. how uh, the name always stuck to me uh, because the entourage lead character name was Vincent Chase and their brand initially was called Vincent Chase. Yes, and, they still use that. <laughs> yeah, they still use that brand. And uh, whenever I look at that brand, oh, this is Vincent Chase. You know, it's it's a creative name they got out, uh, but it looks nice, uh, and it was also cheap at that point of time. Uh, right. And and Lenscard is doing great, right? So yes, the rest is history. in all your answers right uh, when i'm listening uh, one thing which stood out to me is uh, your focus on margins and profitability from day one and today we have you know startups and companies which are you know even some of the huge ones which went to public even for the ubers of the world the airbnbs of the world right they went to this humongous side with with and i mean the poster child of co-working space we work right they were hardly focused on um, uh, making profits so right. i i'm kind of wondering what your take is in terms of like profitability versus scaling and uh, what did you guys think while you are in the thick of it sure so interesting that you mentioned we work and uh, it's taken us a lot of effort and we continue to kind of undo a lot of things that they've put out in the industry as a way of talking of this industry mm-hmm. uh, but i mean coming back to profitability especially talking of airbnb and uber mm-hmm. 
I think a lot of it, really, Natraj, is about uh, mm-hmm. what business model are you in? Mm-hmm. For Uber, it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's in a winner-take-all market, mm-hmm. and once there are ten thousand Uber cabs running in the city, mm-hmm. it's very hard for someone else to start a cab company. Mm-hmm. So for them to burn money to capture the market just makes sense. Mm-hmm. We, I feel, in co-working is not as much of a winner-take-all market mm-hmm. because, uh, especially post-COVID, there is a benefit of having multiple centers across India. Companies mm-hmm. are demanding certain amount of flexibility in locations mm-hmm. where a multi-location operator can give some benefits. Mm. but other than that if you think of it till pre covid mm. almost 90% of customers of all co-working spaces mm. were basically teams sitting out of a location mm. yeah and which means if there is a great guy running a single building next to yours mm. uh, and if he's do he or she they're doing a great job of it mm-hmm. then just because you have 10 other locations in india it doesn't matter yeah yeah similarly uh you could sort of talk about locking in a customer mm-hmm. but at the same time once the lease is over mm-hmm. or forget that right if you are truly a co-working space running in a flexible environment and yeah. you are saying customer is a month on month customer yeah you may sell them very cheap for a month yeah but uh, the moment you increase your price they'll go to a next door location yeah i mean it's easy for anyone uh, to hire a building and you know i mean it t- takes a small amount of capital to get started and be a competitor for let's say your hyderabad branch or an ncr branch exactly and which is why we we felt that this is if it's not a winner take all market if you are burning money what are you burning it for yeah right? yeah yeah uh, that was a logic to it yeah uh, i mean for whoever is listening i mean there's a great book out uh, on vwork uh, there was a recent book and the stories that came out of that book are really amazing i mean it's not related right. to co-working space but the amount of craziness that went through in that story was just uh, outrageous uh, but right. you you brought a really interesting point and it's also a good segue Uh, to something i wanted to ask you about is the pandemic effect the co-working space is one of the spaces which got directly uh, impacted uh, on and uh, are sort of seen the effect of covid uh, probably more than other industries uh, how did springboard face it and what is the current status of co-working spaces do you see any shift in terms of how employers will think about co-working spaces do you see the demand going up or down or what is the nature of work it going to affect you know co-working spaces in general way way so let me split this into two questions so on the how did we face it mm-hmm. uh, you're right it was a big blow for us like the whole co-working space industry uh we went down to the market initially to just shore up some capital to be able to survive mm. uh thankfully our investors really believed in us and they believe in the future of co-working mm. and right in march just before lockdowns in india happened 
uh, we were able to get a uh, to issue rights which got subscribed by investors mm. uh, so so that was on how we handled that then post that of course we went through the during lockdown period the pain of renegotiating with the landlords mm. uh, our team stuck by us uh, even though uh, there was about a couple of months of uh, very little or no salary etc Mm-hmm. but uh, th- thankfully we've gone through that and now that the market is coming back we are picking up uh, bits again mm-hmm. on the industry and evolution it's very interesting where co-working has led to a vast majority of companies who were earlier still thinking of co-working as a as a one way of creating office but uh they would like still keep aspiring to have your own office mm. so those companies are now realizing that this is the way to go mm. just the way earlier they would have cars on their own company rolls yeah picking and dropping their employees and they've shifted it to a variable system where taxi operators do it or a uber or a yeah. b2b uber version does it uh in office space now mm. companies are realizing that setting up a whole big office having a team to manage it with the pre predicted pre planned usage that you need to do for next 3 to 10 years mm. is something which is not making sense for majority of the companies yeah yeah and especially um, kind of clubbing it with uh, this uh, work from anywhere kind of a structure mm. uh it, companies are adopting flexibility a lot more yeah and we are seeing a new kind of demand come towards co-working spaces yeah i mean all the companies pretty much around the globe are rethinking uh remote work right so previously it used to be um tough to be in a remote position even in the us right you had to have a uh negotiation and maybe if you are a senior employee you could do remote work but companies preferred on site work and with i think pandemic the sort of uh mental challenge to remote work is removed right now and one interesting trend i think because a lot of companies are offering now the hybrid approach right you can either work remote or you can come to office or you can do you know half and half or you can move to a place where you are most comfortable you can move into a city that you are comfortable so in that sort of scenario the best way for them to expand their location is using co-working right if you are a multi-city co-working space then corporates might instead of going through the hassle of creating their these remote sites where employees are working from they could just use a co-working space precisely Uh, so uh, so one is exactly what you said which is the remote areas mm-hmm. then the other is flexibility on amount of usage right so yeah i have a employee who may come in sometimes yes or i will have my team get togethers on tuesday and thursday but other days uh, it might be empty yeah so optimizing infra use for such things is something that co-working were already enabled to do Hmm. and uh, i think that's what's transforming the way commercial real estate industry is right 
sort of extending onto this conversation is because when I thought of co-working spaces, one of the way I think about it is uh, it's resource optimization, right? You're optimizing uh, you know, real estate, you're optimizing usage of electricity, you're optimizing the operations that sort of goes behind, um, you know, keeping a place working and going. Uh, we've seen similar resource optimization ideas, uh, even Airbnbs, for example, is a resource optimization idea, right? If you have an extra space, you rent it out for someone who needs it. And even in US right now, there's a new startup, which is basically Airbnb for garages, right? You can just rent out your garage and for people to store their stuff. So that's also a thing right now. So one of the things that I've always thought is this extension of workplace idea, which is uh, let's say now we are podcasting, right? At some point, we'll also start podcasting uh, in person. And if okay. you just consider podcast, um, a, a 91 Springboard like company could start a podcast studio, which anyone come can you know book a two-hour slot and record their podcast and go. So I've always thought like if WeWork becomes more and more successful, that will happen in US at least. What do you think of such ideas or extensions that can come in co-working spaces? Do you see that uh, happening anytime soon? So uh, let me put it this way. I see co and post that, let's put a blank there, right? So I see mm-hmm. co music creation, yeah, co podcast creation, co studying Mm. Uh, a lot of these come up Mm. uh, and they're there right like there are a few companies which have a bunch of music studios yes Uh, in india uh, this uh, it's called neighborhood libraries the Mm. thing Mm. Uh, it's called library it doesn't have books of its own Mm. it's really like kids studying for competitive exams yeah they just go there and sit because your homes are otherwise smaller you're not able to concentrate yeah and the moment you're seeing 10 other kids sit and study, you, you just tend to concentrate more. So, uh, so these are happening. Hmm. Uh, if you ask me on the, do I see co-working spaces uh, start doing these things uh, in a very immediate future? Hmm. Uh, let me stick out my neck and say no. Hmm. And the reason is because the commercial office bit of co-working yeah in itself is such a big market and it's uh, now coming back with a vengeance Hmm. so i think uh, the co-working operators will really have their hands full Hmm. to be able to start creating these other wings uh, for now right so yeah that's how i feel it will be for at least next two years yeah, yeah. I mean that makes sense, but it's also an idea for other competing co-working spaces to offer as a service as well. I think definitely, definitely. So if you're a smaller co-working space which feels like you need to again pivot to create a right uh, kind of focus on a niche market and yeah. be profitable in that, a lot of these ideas would work. Yeah. So I, I'd like to uh, like shift gears a bit and talk about your fundraising experience. I mean, uh, you had uh, uh, Deepak, uh, who was your early investor, but you went on to raise, you know, venture capital from a Japanese firm as well, right? So how was that journey? And sort of a twofold question, like how was, how difficult or easy it was? Uh, and what was your experience of raising uh, funds for uh, springboard and 
what is the change that you see uh, what happened between 2013 and right now we are in 2020 end of 2020 how did the fundraising scenarios change in our initial rounds uh, uh, it's it's very uncool to say this as an entrepreneur but i i must confess that uh, it was easy once we figured what a model is mm. So initially, till we were about five or six spaces, uh, till the time Deepak came, we tried to fundraise and a lot of investors at that time, especially VCs, they won't look at us. They'll keep saying no. Uh, Indian VCs didn't have a thesis around co-working at that time. Hmm. Uh, Once Deepak came in, Hmm. raising our seed round and series A round, was something which was honestly a breeze yeah and largely because of uh, the kind of background deepak had mm. he has been your very honest very sincere person mm. of course people who've been his customers or who've known him in life mm. uh, he's one of those guys who where people would trust him yeah right? yeah and when he decided to come in full time into yeah. 91 Springboard, uh, a lot of these people were just willing to bet behind him. Mm. Uh, beyond that, our team was great. Yeah. Uh, Varun, Anand, and I mean, you have to talk to them to realize that they are rock stars. And uh, finally, uh, having a big daddy uh, in the US who's really grown, raised mm. massive funds, mm. also leads to a signaling effect which allows you to raise it more easily yeah yeah i mean you had i think uh, my sense was you had two things going one is you had a really solid team uh a sort of a three things actually you had a really solid thing i mean this is my perspective looking externally right you had a really solid team with diverse experience and you had um warren who had already sold uh, a previous startup and you have deepak with incredible credibility and the second thing that I think worked for you guys really well is your focus on profitability from day one. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, and the third thing is, I think whenever you have a company like WeWork or even for Ola, if there is a Uber equivalent, that actually gives venture capitalists, okay, there's an opportunity here. There's a proven model here. And people are always chasing those kind of opportunities that worked elsewhere. I mean, we have seen that with uh, starting from e-commerce to, you know, um, Uber to uh, now co-working spaces and now ed tech as well, right? Because these things worked somewhere else, it's often that we try to find the equivalence that will work or VCs tend to chase those models as well. You're right. So those were the primary things. And plus, finally, the fact that our customers were really happy, our retention rates were great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were working with the bestest brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so honestly, almost everything was perfect, right? And that allowed us to fundraise. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I had to ask, I had to ask another question because uh, you went to an IIT, you went to an IM, right? So there was this conversation I was engaged in Twitter uh, about, uh, you know, VC's bias towards investing in IITs and you're sort of the poster child for that. So I think I have to ask this question. Is there a bias uh, in Indian investors towards investing towards, you know, premium college founders versus uh, non-premium college founders? 
and i'll give my opinion as well uh so my answer is yes and i think it's no different from the bias that investors have in us for stanford and berkeley founders yeah uh and the reason honestly is uh i think in the beginning when you're investing in a startup there mm-hmm. are so many unknowns mm-hmm. and there's so many risks that you're taking that this bit of the founder coming from premium college kind of covers for the risk of would the founder have a network or not yeah the founder of a certain base level iq or not yeah and i think it's uh, honestly driven by that mm-hmm. uh, the other founders who are not from premium colleges they find it harder to fundraise yeah but uh, i think uh, once they're able to prove so they they have their other proxies right so for them yes. the proxy might be traction yeah it might be a proven network mm-hmm. uh, whereas for someone from a premium college the fact that they're from premium college kind of proves their network yeah i mean i so i've seen sort of both sides of the table and when you're investing in a company at an early stage the things that you look at you basically have no data right it's completely an opposite to what you do in public markets where you have all right. sorts of data while private companies you have nothing right if at if it's on pre seed stage what you're betting is essentially the team and i think the signal of premium college is probably the only signal high enough that is attracting the capital at that point but i also think that that effect also like reduces over time uh, i mean the effect will not go away at any point soon but it also slowly reduces because we have some incredible companies created right uh, from non premier college founders as well so it's it's not just about them but it's sort of uh, our human tendency of finding signals when we are facing an uncertain situation and it happens everywhere i mean in us it happens with you know the ivy leaks in india it happens with the iits and the bits and nits um, so it especially at pre seed stage when the company has literally no data you are most of the i mean some of the times you don't have a product in that cases i think um, it takes a huge advantage when you have a team from im or an iit or even in your case you had um, from i think stanford right so it sort of adds to the effect and your ability to sort of create uh, and raise again right because this is not going to be the only time you're going to raise you go up to raise again uh, in most of the cases uh, more in most of the startups that you have to raise again i definitely agree with you in fact i'll give you another simile and i find that uh like i i end up giving a lot of talk to entrepreneurs sometimes yeah yeah and there's this uh, like if you're not from a premium institute you almost feel like vcs are bad because they do something like this and my favorite example is if you end up opening tinder mm. right and you see two profiles and one is from a premium institute and one isn't mm. don't you give a preference to the one from premium <laughs> institute yeah right yeah vcs are that's what they're doing right <laughs> they are opening their own tinder yeah. they are swiping they don't know who they'll meet and what will it turn out as yeah that premium institute kind of is just one more data point for them yeah when you do that sort of investing professionally i mean the whole decision making uh, sense of decision making becomes such an important point and then you find your own signals like i 
whenever I talk to investors, each one has their own way of finding this signal, right? Sometimes even data is a signal. When in your case, you had, you know, a low churn and a lot of good brands and all that good stuff, right? So the signal is sort of changing, but in each stage and everyone has a signal and we use that signaling pretty much everywhere in life is what I feel. You're right. Uh, so I think this is also a good segue to talk about what, uh, I mean, the recent, you know, early stage investing that you've started um, through Angelus Syndicate. So what is your thesis and what is sort of your plan for uh, that in the future? Okay. So uh, interestingly, I didn't tell this to you in the trash, but I've just recently taken a step back from my operating role in the company. Okay. Uh, so Anand now runs the business as a CEO mm-hmm. and uh, the, we've installed a professional team to lead various mm-hmm. divisions in the company. Mm-hmm. So it was a good time for me to take a step back and think through what I mm-hmm. want to do next. I continue to hold my shares and I'm a co-founder, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't have a day-to-day role in the company anymore. Mm-hmm. So, uh, on the other side, this bit of interacting with a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, helping them syndicate, helping a lot of angels is something that I've done since forever, right? It's been 12 years now since I've been doing that. Mm -hmm. So I thought, let me take this break time to just structure it better. Mm. And uh, that's how uh, I thought, let me just set up a syndicate on angel list. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it allows me to be somewhat lazy. (laughs) So next time I'm talking to an entrepreneur, I can explain to them, this is what it is. Whenever I'm coming across an angel who says, Pranay, can mm. you share deals with me? I can say here, just go join this and you'll get to see it. Uh, because otherwise I was working on this memory and doing hundreds of phone calls. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's what it is really. A lot of friends, people who've invested with me before. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I've been on the cap table. When I say I, I mean on behalf of organizations too. Yeah, I've yeah. been on... 70 odd cap tables now Mm. uh, and seen about 30 odd exits. Mm. So just, this is my way of putting it all together in a much better structured manner. Mm. I mean, I think it's very natural position that you are in, right? It's almost like it's a, it feels like, uh, I mean, there's this interesting quote that I read recently somewhere, right? Do something that is, that feels like a game, but feels like work for others, right? If I sort of think that, okay, I'll start a fund, then it becomes a chore or sort of, I need to understand the mechanics of it. Uh, If I'm coming as an outsider, I have to build a network for it. Uh, I have to have LPs who are funding me and I will be the GP. So how do I structure it? But having all that experience and being in 70 cap tables, you know, how the exits work, you know, how the, you know, how the whole system works, you know, how the game is played. So I think it, you are sort of in the right position to actually do this. And I think a lot more of you should actually do it. That's my view as an LP of some sort of these um, syndicates as well. I fully agree with you. So it's just, you know, it's, uh, I've done it enough now that, I just uh, can do it in my sleep, <laughs> the way they say it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, I, I agree. Like in general, India needs a lot more angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel the whole startup industry and machinery mm-hmm. has now started going. Yeah. Uh, 
and i'll tell you why i mean that also sure so while a lot of innovative technology companies have been existing we've had flipkart already etc now but a key element of the oil that powers the machinery is exits yes so till recently a lot of angels and vcs were putting in money the companies were there but the exits weren't coming mm-hmm. and i mean we've heard of paypal mafia uh, all of that exists because you know paypal gave this massive exit and then everyone went about doing different startups funding different startups and that money started flowing in the system yes i think that's what has now started happening in india mm-hmm. flipkart acquisition by walmart led to certain amount of exit coming in yes paytm has already made a lot of people wealthy mintra so there are bunch of companies in india which have now uh, especially tech startups which have created enough wealth and not just stock wealth on paper but actual money in the account and that has started flowing in the system mm. and that will really lead to the next big wave of entrepreneurship uh, getting created i mean you are absolutely right right we need more and more exits and one of the things uh, when i see i mean i was about to write a post about like what is the north star for indian ecosystem right what is the north north star in let's say next 5 years and for me what uh, i see is we need to get to a position where we are listing companies uh, public be it in india or in us um or as well and, uh, and the third point is how do we get uh, sort of create a platform for acquiring indian companies uh one of the models that i've encountered i mean the two countries which did exceptionally good job of getting exits one is china and the other one is israel uh israel famously had this uh, venture program where in order to create sort of the symbiosis effect of because I mean, a lot of people don't realize this is because exits happen because uh, individuals involved know each other or know about those company from uh, early stages of the company itself. So, what Israel did was they had this venture fund program where they allowed uh, like top tier VCs, uh, VC firms to invest in Israel firms, and the government was uh, let's say if you raise a million dollar fund, the government was giving. an additional 1 million dollar uh of uh, 1 million dollars to put in their fund but they're not going to take the profits from the fund so this sort of created a huge in massive inflow of vc firms into israel while what china did was uh, and even like some of the companies right israel is now known for a lot of uh, tech and uh, security startups and there are a lot of examples where for example paypal acquired a security company for 150 million dollars that was sort of the first huge acquisition for israel ecosystem and now if you look at china the amount of companies that are going public both in us and hong kong and shanghai are at uh, almost 10 or 20x of that of uh, indian companies so i think having those exits i think will change the game and as you said flipkart mintra snapdeal paytm right these already have created wealth in the system which is actually now 
I know, you know, people like you who are starting syndicates are actually how the ecosystem should evolve. Yes. Uh, so, and Nataraj, I'll add one more thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think, uh, so the IPOs and big ticket m is one which is definitely needed. Mm-hmm. I think the other bit which really helps the ecosystem is quick, small ticket m Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you look at Y Combinator, the kind of, the just the way the companies there used to get acquired, right? There was this kind of a unsaid rule that uh, there's a million dollar per engineer, yeah. right? So you have four engineers, four million yep. done, signed. Yes. And, and a lot of aqua hiring also, right? Aqua hiring, but uh, like in India, a lot of aqua hiring that we see still Mm-hmm. This really, uh, please shut down the company and I'll give you jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the mm-hmm. acqui hiring where the investor still gets say a two X mm-hmm. or a three X, mm-hmm. uh, and the entrepreneurs get something which is equivalent to their, uh, like, uh, the cost of having given up salary during that period. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think yeah. that is the other bit which keeps the machine flowing well. Yeah. I mean, even in the US, uh, the most average, uh, I've heard a stat where the average acquisition happens at uh, 100 million to 150 million. It's not these big ticket billion dollar things that we usually talk about. It's actually in the 100 million to 150 where actually the most acquisitions happen. And and those are really profitable exits for the people involved, uh, the both the investors and uh, uh, the founders and the early employees. And that basically rolls, you know, creates a huge ecosystem. Um, and another issue I wanted to talk to you because you're also now getting into investments and you have LPs is the, and we've talked about this in our previous conversation is uh, the check size issue, right? In one hand, I'm seeing uh, in the US ecosystem, you have someone like Gagan Biani and ex-co-founder of Udemy starting a new company. And he's saying, hey, we'll have a crowd investment round with as minimum as $500, right? And in our conversations, we talked about, uh, you know, founders in India having, you know, limiting the number of LPs uh, that are getting into a round. So what, why do you think that difference exists today? And, well, and my view is that for founders, even in India, I think they have to allow a lot more early stage, small investors, because in a way you are helping uh, the whole ecosystem. Like we've talked about, right? If an exit happens, you're creating more investors. You're creating more early stage employees who will become founders themselves. And also most importantly, these early stage investors will become sort of a network for you, which will help both the company as well as, you know, they'll become your uh, unpaid spokesperson sort of, you know, spreading the goodwill all around the world. So I agree with you, Nataraj. I think uh, having uh, a lot of investors who can go around saying, hey, this is my company. Uh, is something which is worthwhile. Right? And, uh, I mean, if you think of it, Reliance in India is that story. Mm. He took money from small ticket investors and he created wealth for not just himself, but the whole investor group. Yeah. Right? There are uh, stories of how people 
went to him and cried on how he enabled them to uh, marry their daughters etc kind of things yeah uh, i think uh, the reason is not being adopted widely by tech entrepreneurs is linked to regulation a lot mm-hmm. more than will always mm-hmm. uh, so right now still the kind of crowdfunding regulation that got passed in us is something that the indian regulators are still figuring out and, yeah uh, uh, one correction that i want to make is like i'm comparing it uh, not just the crowdfunding aspect in india but just in case of you know how many lps you want to have on your syndicate even in the accredited investor side of things right right so the way regulations work in india right now if you have more than 200 people mm-hmm. on your uh, category mm-hmm. then you are governed by a different set of regulations and the kind of uh, rules you need to follow around filings you do and compliance you do are much stricter mm-hmm. so i think uh, the uh, uh, so angel list and let's venture which is uh, really massive uh, it's a it's like a, the angel list of india and mm-hmm. doing a great job of at it mm-hmm. they have solved it by uh, doing it under a structured what's called a investment fund in india yep uh i it's still early it's been i think less than a year or so since mm-hmm. they've been doing this so uh i feel very hopeful about it i think give it another 2 3 years and we'll see a lot more uh of buzz happening here where these structures will become popular yeah and because of these structures becoming popular people will be able to invest with smaller tickets mm mm-hmm. Uh, so honestly i feel the ball has started rolling in that direction it's a matter of time yeah yeah shifting away from you know check sizes and investing i want to talk about the place you are living in and where i studied for five years goa and uh, the sort of opportunity right now uh, one of the things i've been noticing is a lot of people now have the flexibility to move to different places and a lot of cities are rethinking of how to attract talent i mean we are seeing that in the us like a lot of uh, sf to texas or new york to miami migration is happening because of the flexibility right so i'm wondering like a place like goa right which is a sort of one of the um, you know famous tourist destination how is goa thinking and uh, how are, how do you think goa will evolve and as an advisor uh, at to you know uh, people who are uh, in touch with the regulation how do you see goa and how can they actually monetize this opportunity sure uh, so it's interesting where i like we were one of the first uh, companies at our size to shift our headquarters to goa mm-hmm. and we literally shifted with a 40 people team three of us co-founders mm-hmm. uh, we've been here for about four and a half years since we shifted delivery which is a unicorn logistics company in india has shifted their headquarter here mm-hmm. uh, i feel a lot more of this will happen mm-hmm. uh, and you right if anything uh, pandemic has led to this getting adopted a lot more mm-hmm. uh, one reason is people being comfortable with remote working including your clients right now they are more comfortable with talking to you remotely yeah the other is uh, the whole decision illusion with being in a big dense city 
the infrastructure there is broken it's polluted if there's a disease it spreads much faster and all of that yeah so i think it will get adopted uh if you ask me what does goa as a government need to do i honestly feel uh, it's a lot simpler now mm. especially if you look at tech startups you know uh, these are companies which don't need too much regulatory support yeah they have been able to grow because the regulations were ignoring them rather than because of the regulation yeah so i think it's a, it's a lot easier than regulation i think a large part of it is simply marketing mm-hmm. i think uh, telling people that this is an option here are examples of companies which are already based here mm-hmm. uh, enabling a much easier trial so for an entrepreneur who wants to come to go and try it out having a couple of nice spaces that they can approach they can work in while they are here it gets they get introduced to some great entrepreneurs around here mm. that allows them to think that they're becoming a part of a society mm. rather than they're uprooting themselves from a location and they'll be setting everything back again from scratch yeah i think a few of these things are more important uh i like the good part for government is at least the it entrepreneurs i don't think they really care as much about tax breaks yeah right so it's a it's a much cheaper effort for government to pull this off yeah so before we end our conversation uh, do you have any suggestions in terms of books podcasts or blogs you know for you know people who are looking to start their own companies or sort of anything that has influenced you and helped you i think uh, so throughout our conversation also i talked about how i have focused a lot on profitability as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. right and the way we talk about it on honestly it does sound sexier right there's yeah. there's this element of hey all those people who are scaling companies massively and burning are uh, they don't know what they're doing and there's this big people giving them money yeah uh, but we are the ones running real businesses right so that's how we sometimes end up approaching it mm. i will urge people on this blog to read uh this book called blitz scaling by reed hoff mm-hmm. uh, i've read it recently and it's something which makes me really think a lot uh, i end up taking a pause after a few pages and keep thinking through different strategies and uh, i i'll i'll really recommend you read that and while reading that think through be open in your mind on how it's not that one is right and the other is wrong it's mm-hmm. a lot about what is right for a kind of company and what's right for another kind of company uh, i love the way readers written the whole book especially mm-hmm. uh, uh, also how he talks about this aspects of when you are blitz scaling mm-hmm. uh, there are things which will break and it's okay to let them break right uh, and i think that's very important uh. yeah i mean the best books are always the ones that stop you from reading it and start thinking about it i always thought the best books you shouldn't read continuously you have to give gap and think about that you know that's the book that is actually triggering something in you um uh, 
yeah thanks for the suggestion pranay and thanks for this conversation and it was great talking to you um uh, and thanks for being here thanks a lot natraj uh, great talking to you uh, and i i hope uh, to continue following your blog and listen to a lot of great speakers uh, best of luck in this journey of yours thank you